You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen, and I'm joined by my friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from the Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Obedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. So it's great to be back with you guys today. Um, We were just talking before we began today about COVID-19, because, you know, that is kind of a topic on the news these days, in case you hadn't noticed. And we were, I made the observation that in Tennessee, it's really interesting, depending on the part of the state you live in, um, how people react to to COVID-19 in the area. And so I know in Nashville, we're kind of the area that has the most cases of COVID-19 in our state. And this past weekend, I went to visit um, family in the eastern part of the state. And, it, you know, nobody had masks on. Um, people were at restaurants without masks. Um, I actually didn't go inside a restaurant, but I was in an outdoor restaurant. And nobody had masks on. And I, I, I kind of, not wearing my mask with all these people around, I almost felt like I was like, forgot to put my shirt on or something. I felt really paranoid. So I was just curious as to what you guys have observed in your respective areas and what your thoughts are. So Nevada is fairly heavy on masks. I mean, the entirety of Nevada is essentially Las Vegas in the southern part, Reno in the top part, and then there's a whole lot of empty space with just tiny towns in in between. And there's a whole lot of, I mean, the loneliest highway in, in the country is in Nevada. And so <laughs> there's, it, true story. Um, and so most of the population is concentrated in these two places. And at least in Vegas, there's, there's a ton of mask wearing, uh, um, which I really appreciate. I mean, the, the, there's a hotspot in the country that's in Utah, Vegas, Arizona. I know it's spreading towards you in Texas, Susan. And I, Mm -hmm. like, if I see people without masks, it's, it's like, they're walking around without their pants on and all their bits hanging out. And I am not interested in that at all. So Carrie, I have a question. When you were in the casino this weekend, were you wearing a mask then? (laughs) (laughs) I'm joking. She didn't tell me she was in a casino this weekend, but I was just wondering, you know, maybe, maybe she's going to admit to something. Because I'm pretty sure Carrie does not frequent casinos. (laughs) Well, you know, you never know. I've never put a nickel or a penny, or any denomination on any kind of gambling device. Carrie, I swear, every time we talk, I learn something new about you that surprises me. What is it going to be next week? You'll just have to tune in and find out. You've never put a single dime, nickel, anything in a slot machine? Really? No. Yeah. I, you I are mean, kidding. No, I don't care. When this epidemic is over, I want to be there when you put your first nickel in. We're going to fly back out to Las Vegas and gamble with you, I think. Yeah, I remember just <laughs> how much uh, effort it took to get the two of you guys to go down to the strip and just how much hemming and hawing you were doing if you were even going to go down there. So, But we did, though, didn't we, Susan? We did we go down to the strip. Did, yes, we did. We did. so much fun. We did. We didn't gamble, but we had a we great time. Yeah, that's true. We didn't gamble, but maybe the three of us together could get, it up, get up enough courage to gamble, but... Anyway, so I digress. Sorry, Carrie, you were talking and I, I butted in there. Oh, but the the strip, now granted, I haven't gone down there, but I mean, there's the go-go dancers have masks on them. And <laughs> oh my goodness. So they may not have a shirt, but they've got a mask on. Oh, you better believe it. I mean, <laughs> you're you're not going to get COVID through, you know, a nipple or some other spot. 
but you're <laughs> damn sure going to get it through your uh, your face. And so, yeah, they've got masks on. All the casino tables for the table games have plexiglass dividers separating the players wow. from each other and the dealer. The chips all get washed in between. I mean, Vegas. No kidding. Is, wow. They're, they're not playing around. And yet it's still a hot spot. Yeah. I think y'all are taking a lot more seriously than most of Texas is. Um, you know, it, it's, I feel like I live in two worlds. I live in my medical world where everyone I walk around has a mask and we're all super, super careful and, and everything like that. And then when I go to the grocery store or, um, we go to a restaurant, um, it's, it, it's like nothing ever happened. I mean, you, you do see some people out with masks on and, and that type of thing. Um, but it, it's, it, it's really interesting because like there, um, we've started opening up some of the amusement parks and uh, we have season passes to Schlitterbahn, which is the world's greatest water park, according to the travel <laughs> panel in my own little town. It and like you're swearing in German when you say that. <laughs> and, um, you know, we haven't, we haven't been yet. They just recently opened and, and essentially you, you're supposed to wear your mask anytime that you're not on a ride. And it is over a hundred degrees during the day. Yeah, that's that's pretty hot. And I'm like, "Mm, there's just like the place itself has lots of redeeming factors, but I'm like, I I just can't like rationalize mask on, mask off, wet mask. Yeah, I I mean, like, like, (laughs) yeah, that wouldn't be fun. Masks are bad enough, you know, as they are. And um, for our listeners, because I always get asked by my patients, um, like, how do you wear masks, like, as a doctor all the time? Number one, like, when we do surgery, those masks are of a completely different quality (laughs) than what all of us are having to wear in, like, quote, our normal lives now. Because I never have any trouble, like, you know, breathing during surgery, whereas these inexpensive masks or the cloth masks or whatever you happen to wear, I feel like I'm always like su- almost sucking the mask into my Me mouth. too. <laughs> Plus the OR is a lot cooler too. So you don't get so hot when you're in the mask in the OR, you know? So yeah, it's, it's not true. a lot of fun. That is for sure. Well, yeah, it's, I, I feel the same way, Susan. I feel like sometimes I'm living in two different worlds when I go out versus at work, but. Um, I'm just impressed that the two of you are going out. Like I live between my <laughs> office, the grocery store and my house. I have not been out anywhere else since March. Wow. Last weekend was my first foray out into the real world in a restaurant, but it was an outdoor restaurant. So um, I, f- I felt a little more protected in an outdoor restaurant, but it's an interesting world. Well, before we proceed on, um, we're going to talk about our viewer question of the day. And so we had a viewer question um, and she asked, um, I keep reading about supplements that help with, in her case, recurrent pregnancy loss. Is there any truth or proof that CoQ10, DHEA, and L-arginine help with egg quality? If so, how much is needed? So who wants to start with that question? You can sense our excitement. <laughs> I'm like, do I have to call on somebody to answer the question? Yeah. You know, the, the issue with supplements is with any of the supplements, the data is limited. Okay. And, and there there's so much heterogeneity and and differences between all of our patients. It's kind of like when a patient comes in and says, in our particular situation, if I'm doing this treatment, what exactly are my success rates? Uh, Unfortunately, like 
the data doesn't work that way. And I tend to use supplements for women, um, not including folic acid and prenatal vitamins and that type of thing. Um, but for um, diminished ovarian reserve, and I usually use DHEA and CoQ10 in those situations. I think the, those are the situations that it has the... Um, strongest evidence. Um, now recurrent pregnancy loss because there's so many different factors and the the fact that, you know, of the 50% of people who actually have an identifiable reason for recurrent pregnancy loss, 30% of them have more than one thing going on. Uh, I, I don't tend to recommend those, um, for recurrent pregnancy loss itself. What do you do, Carrie? So, I am kind of in a similar boat. I tend to use the same ones that you mentioned more for decreased ovarian reserve for recurrent pregnancy loss or RPL is our shorthand for it. I don't tend to give a whole lot of supplements. Um, oftentimes I'll start people on aspirin after they conceive and progesterone, but those, I mean, those aren't really supplements. They have a supplementary action. The data for those over the counter meds. How's that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> at least the aspirin's aspirin. over the counter. Yeah, um, you don't want to start it before you conceive because it can inhibit ovulation, and even then, the data is not great for it. And there have been some decent studies that show that it doesn't do any good. And so, I am fully aware that I am not in well proven ground on that one. I think sometimes I give it just as much, so it's we're doing something. Um, the RPL is hard. I think it's one of the harder diagnoses that we work with on an emotional level too, because it, the the joy that a lot of our infertility patients have when they see the positive pregnancy test doesn't come for these patients. They're like, okay, here we go again. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I do similar. I think sometimes, or at least recently, I've started using CoQ10, coenzyme Q10 a little bit more for recurrent pregnancy loss patients, mainly because, you know, sort of at least the biologic plausibility, nobody really knows, but we think the mechanism of action with CoQ10 is that it may um, improve the powerhouse set of the cells, the mitochondria may help with cell division. And, you know, there's some data that may suggest that patients with recurrent pregnancy loss may have a little bit higher chance of having um, aneuploid embryos, embryos that don't have the right number of chromosomes. And so, you know, I don't honestly have scientific data to support this, but I figure if coenzyme Q10 helps with cell division and, and division of the chromosomes, perhaps that may improve chances. And I kind of figure there's no data to really show it hurts anything. So dose-wise, we usually use 600 milligram, 600 milligrams, mainly because the studies that are out there have suggested that that's the correct dose, but we really don't know that either. So I always tell patients probably a little bit is better than, you know, none at all. So if you can't get in 600 milligrams, then, you know, get in what you can. And um, so, but it's, the data is definitely limited. I think the NIH is trying to fund more studies, um, looking at, at doing randomized perspective studies on women who are using supplements, but the data is just not there. And I think there's some really limited studies that have maybe shown some benefit of some of those, but you have to really be careful because, I mean, they are truly very limited studies with really small numbers of women. Some of them even are in of one of, uh, you know, a group of one or two women. So you really can't make sense of data when you don't have big numbers. So those are my thoughts. Um, any, anything you guys want to add? I think we're, we're good to start talking to our guests today. All right. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our special guest today. Her name's Candace Whelan. Um, she has conceived twins 
through the use of a gestational carrier. And she's going to share her experiences with us today. And um, she happens to also be one of our IBF nurses at Nashville Fertility. And we're very, very happy to have her. So Candace, start out, if you don't mind, just tell us a little bit about your experience and, and give us some insight into what it's like to conceive with a gestational carrier. First of all, thank you for having me. Um, so we're glad you agreed to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You didn't have to twist my arm too much. Um, I actually started the process, um, knew I was going to have to start the process about 13 years ago. Um, after I had my son, I had to have a hysterectomy due to a blood clotting disorder. And long story short, ended up in a divorce. And when I got remarried, my husband had no kids. And I knew if we were going to ever have kids that we would have to use a gestational carrier. How, how did you kind of mentally uh, cross that bridge from I don't have a uterus to I want to have somebody else carry my children? I think with me, it was easier because of the fact that I had had a child previously myself. Um, and because I knew for years, I actually had my hysterectomy in 2006 and I knew that we were going to have to do gestational care once I got remarried in 2008. So it was definitely a, I had several years to prepare for it, but I knew I didn't have another choice. So it's a lot easier to cope than being told when you go into a doctor's appointment that you can't have kids. So I knew that was going to be the outcome. So how did you start looking around to find a gestational carrier? So the original search started in 2011 and I actually put a message on Facebook asking if anybody had thought about, you know, ever being a gestational carrier. Um, and I'm from a town in Mississippi, so very Southern conservative. And I got a couple of responses back. Um, one, which was a girl I went to school with and sort of fell through rather quickly. So I realized after that, that I didn't want somebody that I knew, but I also couldn't necessarily afford, you know, $60,000 for an agency fee either. So uh, I actually found my gestational carrier on a website called uh, gestationalsurrogatefinder.com. Hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. So there's, um, I worked as a gestational carrier intended parent nurse coordinator uh, previously. And so I would always tell my patients then that there's three ways to find a carrier through an agency, a sister, a friend, somebody that you know already, or finding somebody that you don't know. And there's actually several websites that are found for this purpose. Uh, so you go on, it's almost like a match.com. So you, <laughs> you create a profile, uh, sort of telling your story, what you're looking for, what you want, the values, just like a dating profile. And <laughs> once you're matched, then an email, like a um, secure email is being sent. So you're not exchanging information or anything to start with. And then you talk through the website and then eventually you can exchange information if you decide to move forward. So Candace put on your hat as a nurse, an IVF nurse, what do you think are the important things for people to ask of their gestational surrogate? How, how, do you, how do you go through all the profiles and figure out which one's the right one for you? 
Um, so when I started, which was before I ever became an IVF nurse at all, so I was doing all this blindly, uh, I actually had a four-page questionnaire. I think it was 110 questions. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I came up with. And so, so if everybody made it through the whole questionnaire, they must be pretty interested, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, so I actually sent it to the girl that ended up being my gestational carrier and she filled it out and then she sort of turned the tables and sent it back to me and said, okay, now I want you to answer them before we actually could look at each other's. Um, I think oh, the wow. thing, that was interesting. <laughs> yes. That I tell my patients or that I told my patients previously is the biggest thing is you want to know that they're in it for the right reason. It can't be money motivated. Um, they need to have children of their own that they have birthed and didn't have any issues with their pregnancies. Uh, you want to make sure you're on the same page when it comes to terminations because you never know what's going to happen. Even with the you know, CCS normal embryo, PGT normal embryo, you never know what's going to happen. Um, so you want to make sure that all those boxes are checked up front and that you're meeting on the same page with the big things so the little things sort of fall into place. So did you meet personally with your um, gestational surrogate before you guys started working on a contract or were you in the same state? We were not in the same state. I lived in uh, Memphis, Tennessee at the time, and she lived in Southern Alabama. Uh, we started talking October the 26th. I met her the second week of November. I did. I had not actually completed IVF yet, so I did my IVF uh, in February. Our contract was done in January. And we transferred in March the first time. What happened with that transfer? Uh, she got pregnant um, and then miscarried at eight weeks and three days. I bet that was a tough, tough one to go through, I bet. Yes, because I'll be honest, I wasn't expecting that. I had had two children previously, which were quite a bit older, obviously, at this time. And my issue was I didn't have a uterus. So my eggs were good. My husband's sperm was great. So it was like the doctor did not think we would have any issues. We had the embryos. They were tested, transferred, got pregnant. It was like, awesome, this is great. And then mm. went over an ultrasound and it wasn't. So it was absolutely the hardest thing I have ever went through. Aww. How did you and the carrier kind of deal with that loss, both physically and emotionally? Uh, when we found out, I'd actually went to an appointment for the ultrasound with her. So we were there together when we found out. And as crazy as it seems to look back on it, I was actually comforting her when we found out because I guess I was trying to be the strong one at the point and she had never experienced loss and wasn't expecting anything different. And it sort of, I think, took her by surprise in the long run, it definitely made us closer than what we ever could have been. Uh, I think if we hadn't have went through it. Yeah, I think the times when we've had gestational surrogates at National Fertility that have miscarried, it's really, you know, I think because all of them are in it for the right reasons, it's amazing how really sad they are, devastated they are that it doesn't work. I and mean, they almost feel like they've let, you know, the intended parents down because they had a miscarriage. And it sounds like that's the experience that you had too. Yes, my gestational carrier, her name's Heather, and she will tell you to this day that she felt like such a failure because she was trying to do something that she knew we wanted so bad and she wanted to do for us. And then 
to know that she wasn't able to give that to us at that point and we had to go through that was almost more than she could handle because she wasn't expecting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, it ended up turning out fantastic. That's why I ended up getting into being an IVF nurse to start with. So I'm thankful in hindsight that it actually did happen because I don't think I would have ended up where I'm at now if I hadn't went through that. So how long did it so take with that you guys transfer, to we had six embryos that three were normal, two really good quality and one not so great quality embryo. So we ended up, the first one, which was the best one, didn't thaw. Uh, the second one, they thawed and the doctor actually advised us to transfer the third one as well, which would have been two in that case we were transferring because it was such a bad quality embryo. So once that ended, we actually had to start the whole process over again and go back through the IVF part as well. Um, We moved, that all happened in May of 2015. We moved to Colorado in December of 2015. My husband got deployed in February of 2016. So we had to wait for him to get back from deployment to be able to start the IVF process again to go back into it. So we actually had a break from 2015 when she miscarried until 2017 when I went back through for the second round of IVF and transfer. But she still wanted to be your carrier and you still wanted her. I could not have imagined going through it with anybody else. And if she would have told me no, it probably would not have the two kids that we have now. So... (laughs) So when you went back through, you, were you in Colorado then when you went back through or did you go back through in Memphis? I did my IVF treatment in Memphis, but I was already working in Colorado when I ended up going through the second time. So was there anything that you guys talked about the second time around before you started about what happens if this, if that, I mean, were you more nervous about doing it the second time around? As far as stuff between me and her, all that stuff had been settled in the beginning. So I will say the second time around, I was a lot more reserved and I was on pins and needles the whole entire time because I had realized from my own experience previously, plus all of my patients now that I was seeing coming through and things happening that you just never, there's never a guarantee. That's so right. And you, you always are nervous when you're pregnant because you just never know. That's right. Yeah. And so when did she finally deliver then? When, when, when were your children born? And tell us about the delivery and, and sort of the, since we've heard the sad part, tell us the happy part in the delivery room. Uh, so we transferred in April of 2017. Uh, she delivered in December of 2017. And she had a pretty easy pregnancy the whole time. She did get mild preeclampsia toward the end. So she was in the hospital for a couple of weeks leading up to it. And we'd actually went down early to stay with her so we could be there. Um, the hospital had never had a surrogate pregnancy before. <laughs> super nervous, but I will say they did an outstanding job. They had everything lined up. Our attorneys had all the paperwork ready to go. We had went previously and met with the hospital just so they would be familiar with what was going on. And so I actually had name bands for the baby and me with my name on it, which doesn't always happen in a surrogate delivery. Um, I had induced lactation. So the hospital was very 
like supportive and making sure that I had a room and a breast pump and. Oh, wow. That's impressive. It was fantastic. Like the whole experience was absolutely amazing. Um, She delivered vaginally. That's really um, nice. Both babies. Wow. Wow. (laughs) But uh, they actually allowed my husband to come back to a viewing window so he could see from the outside so he could still see what was going on. And it was perfect. Great. That is so amazing. What words of advice would you give to somebody who was thinking about needing to use a gestational carrier? I tell people it's not coming into it expecting to have to use one uh, when I get the news that the most important thing is to make sure that you're okay with having to use a gestational carrier and that you've accepted that. Once you get to that point, absolutely the most important thing is, first of all, enjoy. It's a very stressful process. It's a long process. There's no guarantees. You don't have a lot of control. You have to be able to give up control that, you know, you normally have. And I will say most IVF patients are good with that because they're having to give up some control for, you know, IVF to get pregnant to start with. But it's definitely, you have to put trust into somebody else. And it's hard when you don't have to go through it. I think realizing that there can be somebody out there that wants to do something like that, really just because they want to do it, not because there's an ulterior motive to it. And it's finding somebody that you have that gut feeling about that you know is the right person because it's a big deal. My gestational care and I are best friends to this day. I talk to her about four times a week still. (laughs) I've been with family. I get fantastic. So Candice, tell us for patients that are going through now from a nursing perspective, sort of give us a summary of if you met with somebody for the first time and they said, okay, what are the steps I have to go through to have a gestational surrogate, kind of the legal stuff and the FDA stuff. Just give us kind of a brief summary of all that stuff. Great question. So uh, I did all mine backwards. So I would recommend that patients have embryos to transfer first and they know that, you know, they've got something to actually go for. Um, The first step is decide if you want to do an agency who's going to do most of your legwork for you. It has to be more expensive, but they're definitely going to make sure all the little pieces are put together. And if I have a patient that wants to do it by their you know, themselves. And I absolutely am supportive of that because it's cheaper and it can be done. It can be done flawlessly to do it that way. So it's finding out the way that you want to do it. Um, what are the I, steps? Tell tell us about the steps that you have to do. So once you find out how you want to find the gestational carrier, you need to find one. Uh, legal is the second part that's going to come in. And that's a big part. They both need their own attorneys. Uh, you can't have a joint attorney. And one attorney does have to be in the state where the baby's going to be delivered at. Um, Also check and make sure that the state is surrogate friendly. Um, The next step is once legal's in place, then it's getting them in to do their, you know, work up with their uh, fertility clinic, make sure that they're cleared to go and then doing the transfer. I would say the process takes probably six months to a year. So they need like blood work and things like that to make sure that everybody's healthy, like HIV and that kind of stuff? Yeah, so all that depends on the clinic. And I say that because I've noticed from Colorado to even here and from where I did mine, there's a big difference on the requirements. But with anytime you use a third party, there is extra steps with um, FDA 
paperwork and stuff that has to be done. So there's a little bit more blood work that has to be done to make sure that the GC and her spouse don't have any, you know, sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, it's an extensive work at, uh, work up for a gestational carrier to make sure that she's okay to be able to be, you know, a gestational carrier. And then I know in our state and probably in other states as well, um, a lot of times our gestational surrogates and their intended parents will meet with the attorney a month or so before the baby's about to be born so that they can draw up a legal contract and so that everybody knows who the actual parents are. Because otherwise, I know in the state of Tennessee, the woman who delivers the baby's name will actually go on the birth certificate unless there's a legal document to say otherwise. Was that the case with you or? Yeah, so each state is different. Um, Substates do parentage rights. So you go in uh, in the third trimester, uh, you meet with an attorney and they draw up the paperwork. It's submitted to the court before you ever deliver. And that's saying that at delivery, you and your husband will be on the, uh, together on the birth certificate. Otherwise you do have to adopt a baby per se from a gestational carrier. So it sounds like if you had to sum things up, it sounds like you had a really great experience. Are there any last words of wisdom that you would want to tell our listeners about gestational surrogacy if they're out there and they're trying to decide if that's something they want to do or not? When the baby or babies arrive, it doesn't matter how they got here. They're still yours and you're going to love them just as much. (laughs) That gives me goosebumps. Oh, how sweet. Well, it was so great to have you today, Candice. I think from your nursing perspective and from your own personal experience, I think you've shed a lot of light on conceiving through gestational surrogacy. And, you know, I think many of our patients have had great experiences like yours. So I think it's a wonderful thing. And we really just appreciate you being here today. And so to our audience, we want to say thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. And also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We would really appreciate it. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit specific questions that you have about infertility. And all the questions will be answered on our podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. The more embarrassing, the better. We'll see you again next week and stay safe and be well. Take care, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.